Welcome to the Biblical Significance of Christmas podcast, sponsored by Reformation Heritage Books. I'm Dr. Tavis Bollinger, Director of Media at Reformation Heritage Books, the sponsor of this podcast. The five episodes in this podcast include a series of sermons preached by the prolific author, pastor, theologian, professor, J.V. Fesco, on questions related to the birth of Christ. Fesco's most recent book, The Birth of Christ, is organized around five chapters covering central themes in the Christmas story, including Mary's famous Magnificat, the actual birth of Christ, the phrase, O come Emmanuel, the role of the Magi, and the prayer of Simeon. We hope you enjoy the series of expositions on the biblical significance of Christmas and invite you to get a copy of J.V. Fesco's book, The Birth of Christ, from our website at www.heritagebooks.org. As I said, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and we will be reading verses 46 through 55. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. So let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. Hear now the word of God. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. I think that when we uh, reflect upon the birth of Christ and particularly the, the birth narratives as we find them in the Gospels, I think they can become quite familiar to us and not only familiar to us, but even familiar to those who are outside of the church as these events that uh, we read surrounding the birth of Christ have been transmitted not only to the church, but to the surrounding culture in various means, whether it's in books, whether it's in movies or television shows or plays. We know the basic outline. The angel announces to Mary that she will give birth to the Messiah. And then I think what happens in our minds is that we fast forward to the birth narratives, the angelic host. Uh, as we see Christ laying there in a manger shortly after uh, he is born. Yet I wonder how many of us stop, pause, and consider Mary's response to Gabriel's announcement that she would miraculously give birth to the Messiah. Have we ever paused and reflected upon her uh, song of praise? Have we ever thought and reflected upon her words in the light of the Old Testament? 
Have we considered, for example, her words as a model expression of faith in the gospel of Christ? Well, these are questions that I want us to ponder this evening, and I want us to do so uh, by thinking about it under three different headings. First, thinking about Mary's knowledge of the Old Testament, because if we look at this passage, it's significant, it's steeped, it's infused in the knowledge of the Old Testament. Secondly, we want to look at her praise for her faithful covenant Lord. Because unlike many of us today where we're so used to downloading data and it just maybe perhaps accumulates in our mind or for some of us it flees our mind very quickly, uh, we see that her knowledge of God leads to praise God. It leads to worship. And then third and finally, we want to reflect upon the nature of her faith, the nature of her faith. In other words, she was acutely aware of the promise of the gospel. And because of this, By God's grace, she placed her faith in this promised gospel. So let's reflect upon that, her knowledge, her praise, and her faith. So first, let's give thought to Mary's knowledge. We may not realize it, but it's Mary's song here that constitutes what we could say is one of the few New Testament psalms. Mary's song is not simply an empty jingle, perhaps a conglomeration of words that she assembled, uh, that she just kind of grabbed some loose phrases here and there that she might praise God. I think that we can all come up with uh, maybe songs that are quite popular, that uh, have inane lyrics, but that have sold millions of copies that might fill our minds. I won't mention any now for fear that you'll have the earbug for the rest of the night. Nevertheless, This is not what we can say about Mary's song. We can't look at every single detail of this particular song of hers, and especially as it pertains and it connects to the Old Testament, as it was exceed our time for this evening. But nevertheless, we can look at one part of it. So for example, take a look at verses 46 and 47, where she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Well, it's here that Mary's words are very reminiscent of the psalmists from Psalm 34, which if you noted, we began the worship service with a call to worship from Psalm 34, and then we sang Psalm 34. And in that psalm, David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually on my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble fear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David, in this particular context, I think was reflecting upon uh, the unworthiness of God's condescension to him and delivering him from his foes. And so I think Mary picks up on this particular theme as she reflects upon her utter unworthiness to be the mother of the Messiah, or in the words of the ancient church, that she would be the theotakos, she would be the God-bearer, the one who would give birth to God incarnate. So she was praising God by pulling upon this language from Psalm 34 uh, as it led her to praise. But I think her words also echo the words 
of another woman in the scriptures, namely Hannah, barren Hannah, who prayed so diligently and earnestly and emotionally that she would have a child because she was barren. And as she was there in the temple confines or in the, in the tabernacle confines praying for uh, a child, she cried out with these words from 1 Samuel 2.1, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. She was singing the praises of God because she was now with child, having received uh, a blessing of being able to give birth to a child when she was formerly barren. I think these parallels help us to see two particular things. Is that first, it helps us to see that Mary nourished herself on the word of God. So much so that when she gave expression to her joy and to her praise, it was infused, her words of prayer were infused with the language of the Psalms and the language of other prayers in the Old Testament. So that you could illustrate it by saying that if you pricked her finger, Scripture bled out because she was so familiar with the Old Testament. I think that we forget, particularly in our own day and age, uh, as to how capable the human mind is. In, in days gone by, uh, when books did not exist, the way that people were able inexpensively uh, to carry about knowledge with them was to memorize it. And you would be surprised as to how much information people could memorize. One of my uh, professors, one of my colleagues uh, at my former institution told me of one of his Hebrew professors who through a series of just kind of discussions with him discovered that he had memorized the entire Old Testament in Hebrew. And he said, well, can I test you on that? He said, sure, go ahead. And he started firing off passages and he would just recite passages in Hebrew. So that it was quite possible for somebody like Mary, who as she would listen to the word of God being read in the synagogue, that she would have soaked it in and not only soaked it in, but that she would have memorized massive portions of it. So much so that as she utters forth her joy and indeed even her wonder at the announcement of the angel, that all of this knowledge would come flowing out of her in this song of praise. But I think that what else this tells us, in particular the parallels that we find to Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel, is that she was, I think, aware of the momentous nature of the announcement. You know, sometimes in the history of the interpretation of the scriptures, biblical scholars have looked down their long educated noses laughing and perhaps even looking derisively upon someone like Mary because they think, well, this poor woman didn't understand science. She didn't understand how uh, becoming pregnant worked because she was unscientific. She was a simple, uh, simple woman. And I think far from the truth, I think uh, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand where babies come from. And in this particular case, she was aware of the nature of the miracle. She was aware of the momentous nature of the announcement. 
that he or she was going to give birth to the Messiah. And so naturally she reaches for some momentous words. Say from the words of Hannah, when she herself was blessed by the Lord to be able to be carrying a child. And so here, I think she saw herself in a long line of women who were blessed under similar circumstances. Whether it was Hagar who was blessed with having a child. Whether it was uh, the birth, the miraculous birth, if you will, of Isaac. Or Manoah's wife, when it was time for her to be pregnant with carrying Samson, uh, the great Israelite judge, or perhaps even with Isaiah the prophet, as he announced the future uh, birth of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 7. So I think that Mary was acutely aware of the momentous nature of the angel's announcement. And she was intimately familiar with the Bible and its, and its promises, as we'll see in a few minutes. What I think is so important to note here is that the momentous nature of the occasion, the miraculous nature of the events surrounding the conception of the Messiah, her low estate in recognizing that she was unworthy, might, under other circumstances, lead somebody to be swelled with a great sense of pride. I mean, if we think about it, if we were to receive such a a similar type of announcement that significant redemptive events would occur through us, it might lead us to pride. Not Mary. Not Mary. It led her instead to praise. But before we move on to that second point, Mary's praise for God, we should stop, I think, and ask ourselves that that, that question, the question of how well do we know the word of God? How well do we know it? Were we to receive fantastic news? Would our prayers be somewhat flat and generic? Would we stumble about looking for words? Or would they be infused with the language of the Psalter. You know, so often it's the case that we do not know how to pray because we haven't spent enough time soaking in the scriptures ourselves. So often I think it's not a question of not knowing what to pray for. We see situations before us, whether it's Moments of joy, whether it's moments of sorrow, moments of trial or illness. And so we know what it is that we want to pray for, but sometimes we lack the vocabulary. We lack the words. Perhaps it's because when we think of prayer, we think of it along the lines of a conversation. And few of us think that we don't need a whole lot of practice for conversation because, well, it's so common and we engage in it maybe on a regular basis. But if you've ever been to a party where you're stuck in a corner of the room with somebody who is not a good conversationalist, you'll know that there's sometimes there's an art to being a good conversationalist. Knowing what to say, how to say it, knowing when not to say something. Knowing when to listen, when to speak. 
And so in this case, I think that prayer is something that we can and should study and reflect upon. And one of the ways that we do so is by reading and studying the prayers of the Bible, in particular what we see in the Psalms. If you've ever given thought to how it is that children learn how to pray, or let me back that up afraid, uh, 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 back that up a little bit and say, if you've ever given thought to, to seeing how it is that children learn how to speak, let alone pray, just how do they learn how to speak? Well, so often it's the case that children learn how to speak to their parents by repeating words back to them, the words that they themselves hear their parents saying. You know, I think one of the, the uh, you know, I can think of a number of occasions in my life with my own children where that was the case. My, my children would hear words and then they would say them back to them, say them back to us. My middle child, uh, he would always say, usually, usually. Well, usually. And he just said it with such confidence, not realizing that he was mispronouncing it, but he had learned it from us. Uh, my eldest, we, he, he, we went around the table, we were talking about our favorite nuts. What's your favorite nut? And he even said, Dad, what's your favorite nut? I said, probably the cashew. And he said, you know what my favorite nut is? And I said, what's that? He says, a donut. He didn't know that a donut and that a nut weren't necessarily the same thing. But he had heard us talking about these things, picked it up in the conversation, and repeated it back. Well, beloved in Christ, the way that you can learn to speak to your heavenly Father, the way that you can learn how to pray to him, is by repeating his words back to him. Reading his words in the Psalms, so that when you find those times of joy, you can repeat those words back to him. As he has spoken to you, so you can speak back to him whether it's in times of joy, whether it's in times of sorrow, whether it's in times of trial or tribulation. I think this is how Mary informed her song of prayer, with the words that her heavenly Father had spoken to her, that she was now speaking them back to him in praise. Which brings us to our second point is that Mary doesn't merely muse upon her knowledge of God, but it causes her, I think, to recognize her insignificance, God's power, his covenant mercies. I think it caused her to recognize how lowly and insignificant she was and how great and magnificent and exalted God is. We read in verse 48, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, I mean, in the ancient world, in Mary's time in history, women did not have the rights that they have now. And I've been reading Barbara Tuckman's The Proud Tower, which is, in a sense, the prequel to her famous book, The Guns of August, which is about World War I. And she was talking about the women's suffragette movement in London, that women would go up to members of parliament and kick them in the shins because they wanted the right to vote. They would put uh, light fires in mailboxes. They would disrupt sessions of parliament demanding the vote. 
We live in a time where women have far more rights than they ever have before in previous history. In Mary's day, a woman could testify in court, but there had to be two women in order to testify because it took two women to constitute one truthful voice. Whereas it only took one man in a court of law to testify because a man's testimony was considered true and honest. That's the world in which Mary lived. In Mary's time in history, it was the men who were the heirs of the family. Typically women could not be an heiress, could not inherit family property or money or possessions. But yet Mary recognizes that she has received this amazing blessing that she, a lowly servant, servant of her God, will give birth to the Messiah. And she repeatedly compares her own lowly estate with God's powerful nature. For he, verse 49, who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. She recognizes how high and exalted she has been. She has been lifted up, and that by contrast, God uh, puts down the proud and the arrogant, and he brings judgment upon those who are high and haughty. Would you like to deepen your understanding of Reformed theology? Check out Reformed Systematic Theology, Volume 4, Church and Last Things by Dr. Joel Beakey and Paul Smalley. This book will lead you to explore key scripture topics from biblical, doctrinal, experiential, and practical perspectives. Order the culmination of Dr. Beakey's life's work at heritagebooks.org rst4. But I think one of the things that accentuates Mary's praise, one of the things that I think really acutely made her aware of how special this announcement was, is that she was very much aware that God's love did not fall indiscriminately and equally upon all people. The redeeming mercy of God does not fall universally upon all says in verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. This is a phrase that comes from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And so Mary says, he has shown strength with his arm. Even we could say his outstretched arm. Mary did not look upon this miraculous and this momentous announcement simply from the vantage point of her own personal experience. She looked upon it from the vantage point of God's covenantal faithfulness throughout the ages, reaching all the way back 
even to the exodus and the judgment that fell upon the Egyptians and the redemption that was the nation of Israel's by God's grace. And she saw herself in this line of those who were considered loved by God, that she would receive this blessing of redemption, that she would give birth to the Messiah. God was not going to redeem every single person from the nations, but rather Israel alone, and she was a recipient of this covenant faithfulness and love. But we also see that Mary was aware of how far and how wide these covenant promises spread throughout the history of redemption. As she looked and recognized that God's covenant promises to Israel were being fulfilled in her. Verses 31 and 33 of Luke chapter 1. We didn't read it, but nevertheless it's important that we look at it just to see some context so that we can appreciate what it is that Mary heard and understood. Because the angel announced, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which in Hebrew would be Yehoshua, Yahweh saves, Joshua, Jesus, Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary knew of God's promises. She undoubtedly knew of God's promise to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. As we'll see momentarily, she was aware of the covenant promise that God had given to Abraham. And she was, because of the angel's announcement, undoubtedly aware of the fact that God had promised to David through Nathan the prophet that one of his descendants would reign eternally upon his own throne. And so the knowledge of God's faithfulness throughout the ages filled Mary with praise. I think her posture of worship naturally led her to see how great God was, how insignificant she was, God's mighty place, and yet the privileged place that she had because of the profound blessings that she was receiving from God. I think in the age of downloading data, we mustn't allow technology to rob us of our sense of wonder, our sense of amazement when we consider something like this. I was reading in this book, uh, perhaps interestingly titled, Bored, Lonely, Angry, and Stupid. (laughs) It's a serious book. It's a scholarly book published by uh, Harvard University Press talking about the fact that technology so often robs us of our sense of wonder. We see all kinds of inventions, you know, all sorts of things that previous generations just couldn't even think of or imagine of. And I was in the Sam's Club the other day, and I was amazed. I saw this TV. This TV was, you know, I don't know, maybe a quarter of an inch thick. I was just amazed. 4K resolution, beautiful picture, exorbitant price. (laughs) My kids were like, hey, Dad, can we get this? I was like, yep, not a chance. (laughs) 
Not a chance. Maybe in 20 years when it's uh, going to be 100 bucks. You know, we can be amazed by so much. Well, when we download this information of what we're reading, if you will, about Mary's prayer, Mary's song, don't let the fact that our culture regularly tries to rob us of a sense of wonder so that we would look at this and not be amazed at what we're reading. Mary was filled with a sense of wonder. She was filled with a sense of amazement because she recognized the utter disparity between her lowly place and God's exalted place. She was aware of the blessing that it was that she, of all people in the entire world, out of all of the billions of people that lived in history, she alone would be the God-bearer, the mother of the Messiah, of Jesus, God in the flesh. So because of this, and because of the grace of God, Her heart was filled with praise, with a song of joy, with a song of worship. Which brings us to our third and final point, which is Mary's faith. I think we can say that undoubtedly this song of praise did flow from a heart of praise, a heart of faith. I think that, you know, when we recognize that, yes, we want to acknowledge the fact that the Word of God is the inerrant and inspired Word of God, uh, breathed out by the very Spirit of God, is what Paul tells us in uh, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that it is God-breathed. This shouldn't cause us to diminish the human authorship that is involved in that process. God preserves the human personalities of the authors. He doesn't override them. And in this particular case, it's Mary's faith that that flows out in this passage. As tempting as it might be, I think, to reflect just on Mary's song, I think it's important that we look out once again to recognize and contrast Mary's faith and her faithful response, say, for example, with Zachariah's response to the angelic announcement to him. In Luke chapter 1, verse 6, Luke tells us that Zechariah was righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all of the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So here is a righteous man. This is a priest of the Lord of the tribe of Levi who is dialed into the things of God. What is the Christian parent's greatest responsibility? To teach their children to trust the one true living God. Enrich your family devotions from the Family Worship Bible Guide. This precious book offers rich devotional thoughts for children of all ages on every chapter in the Bible. To learn more about the Family Worship Bible Guide, visit heritagebooks.org. And yet when the angel appeared to him and told him of the birth of his son, John the Baptist, in verses 11 and following... Luke tells us that his response was unbelief. He was incredulous. And for that, the Lord silenced him. (laughs) 
silenced him. And yet, by contrast, when the angel came to Mary, her response was very different. I think when she asked in verse 34, how could this be? It was not one of disbelief, but rather it was a response of, how does this work? How is this going to happen? But notice her immediate faith-filled response in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I am here. Think of Isaiah's words. Here am I, send me. Here I am, Lord. Let it be according to your word. That is a response of faith. That is a response of faith. The faith-filled, gospel-centered, and Christ-exalting nature of her faith clearly emerges, however, in the concluding words of her song in verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. She reaches back even further than the Exodus and goes all the way back to the promise to Abraham. That the promise would be to him and to his seed after him. And as Paul tells us in Galatians, that seed is Christ. And as Paul tells us in Galatians 2, when God promised that that Abraham's uh, blessing would be one for the nations, that this was the promise of the gospel. So Mary here is ultimately saying that she believed in the promise of the gospel, the coming Messiah. She looked specifically to God's promises to Abraham and recognized by a God-given faith that those promises were coming to fruition in her own life. And so she not only responded by faith to God's announcement to the angel, but she also looked by faith to his gospel promise to Abraham. And Mary ultimately looked by faith to her son, Jesus, who would redeem the people of God from their sin and give to them redemption. This should cause us to ask the question, especially in light of the contrast between Zechariah's doubt-filled response to the angel and Mary's gospel faith-filled response. Do we ever doubt the promises of the gospel? Do we ever doubt the, 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 the herald's announcement of the redemption that comes through Christ? I think we might be dishonest with ourselves if we say no, never. Times of doubt come. And while our faith may waver, what is clearly evident and abundantly true in this passage is that God's promises do not waver. Mary reflected upon that, his enduring faithfulness of his promises throughout the ages. The Westminster Confession in chapter 14, paragraph 3, says this about faith. It says, This faith is different in degrees, weak or strong, may be often in many ways assailed and weakened, but gets the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. 
Our faith may waver. We may doubt. But God's faithfulness does not. His promises in Christ do not. And this is the faith that Mary locked into. This is the faith that fed her and enabled her to be able to trust in the promises of God. So, beloved, this particular season of the year, as we reflect upon the birth of Christ, let us not bypass Mary's song all too quickly. Let us look back to this wonderful announcement and let us recognize the nature of Mary's knowledge that her pro- the promises of God uh, were full and were in her heart. And that these promises filled her heart with praise. And not only did these promises fill her heart with praise, but they were ultimately reflective of the God-given faith that she had received by grace alone as she trusted in the gospel promises of God. Beloved in Christ, as we think about these things during this season, let us not be filled merely with sentimental holiday cheer, but ultimately let us sing praises of thanksgiving and worship to our triune God for the message of salvation that has come through Christ and through his gospel, that which brings salvation to a lost and dying world. Let's bow together in prayer. Father God, we are grateful for the promises of the gospel. We are grateful for Mary's song of praise, not only inspired by your spirit, but indeed uttered by her faith-filled heart. And while, O Lord, we are not necessarily the recipients of such a momentous announcement that we will participate in the plan of redemption in such a unique way, we are nevertheless the blessed recipients of that announcement because we, O Lord, have been saved by Mary's Son, by the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been saved by that gospel announcement that Yehoshua, that Yahweh saves, and that he is, you have done so through the Lord Jesus Christ. O oh, Father, infuse our hearts with the knowledge of your promises and your faithfulness throughout the ages. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to recognize our lowly estate, that you would help us, O oh Lord, to recognize how undeserving we are, And that in so doing that we would see how high and exalted you are. But nevertheless, that we would rejoice in knowing that you have plunged into the depths of sin and death. That you would redeem us. That you would lift us up, O Lord, out of the miry depths. That you would place our feet on solid ground. That you would fill our hearts with faith and that you would fill our hearts with praise and thanksgiving. Oh, Father, may Mary's prayer and song be our prayer and song, and that in so doing, we would not only be filled with praise for you and thanksgiving for you, but that we would joyfully and excitedly tell others of this wonderful announcement. 
this wonderful clarion of the gospel of salvation that comes through Christ. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to All of Life for God by Reformation Heritage Books. If you have enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing and sharing with a friend. Reformation Heritage Books is a nonprofit ministry aiming to strengthen the church through Reformed, Puritan, and experiential literature. To learn more about this ministry and how to support us, please visit rhb.org dot o-r-g